Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. It's Sukkot 5783, and I wish all my Jewish listeners Chag Sameach. I also want to welcome the thousands of Christians who came again to Israel this year to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles, which is their description for a sukkah. I am Walter Bingham. Today's program is my exclusive interview with the Ambassador of the United States to Israel, His Excellency Thomas R. Knights. He will explain the current U.S. policy on Israel and other prominent trouble spots in the world. Israel's warm relationship with the United States has been emphasized by every U.S. president since our state was established at midnight on May 14, 1948. On that same date, it was U.S. President Harry S. Truman's momentous decision in 1948 to recognize the state of Israel, much against the strong opposition of the American State Department and, of course, the Arab world. Initially, it was de facto. The de jure recognition was extended several months later, on January the 31st, 1949, and ever since then, the policy of the United States has been to cautiously support Israel because they saw it as the only democratic state in the Middle East with moral and ethical values like their own. It was in November 1995 that the 104th U.S. States Congress passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act to provide for the relocation of the embassy to Jerusalem and called for Jerusalem, the capital of the State of Israel, to remain an undivided city. There was one snag. This law allowed the President to invoke a six-monthly waiver of the application of the law and reissue the waiver every six months on national security grants. It was repeatedly renewed by Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama and just once by President Trump and the embassy remained in Tel Aviv and successive U.S. ambassadors did not reside in the capital. It was President Donald Trump who kept his promise and on May 14, 2018, during the period of Ambassador David Friedman, the United States embassy was officially relocated to Jerusalem to coincide with the 70th anniversary of Israel's Declaration of Independence. The past two ambassadors were Jewish, and so is the present incumbent of this important office, His Excellency Thomas R. Knights. He has kindly agreed to join me and explain current Jewish policy on international trouble spots, particularly towards Israel. Welcome to the program, Mr. Ambassador. Walter, it's my honor to be here in your presence. You were born into a Jewish family and have seven siblings. Where do you fit in? And tell me briefly about your early life. Well, uh, thank you, Walter. And first of all, again, it's, uh, it's an honor to be in your presence. I look around this uh, beautiful studio and I look at all the famous people you have on the wall. I don't feel worthy of being here, uh, but I'm honored to be invited. Uh, I'm the youngest, as you mentioned, of youngest of seven kids. I'm the youngest. I'm the caboose of a family of from Duluth, Minnesota, which is northern Minnesota. Very cold there, by the way. Uh, I grew up in a very um, culturally Jewish family. My father was the president of the temple. 
the head of the UJA. My mother was the head of the sisterhood in Hadassah. Uh, I grew up believing being Jewish was more than just the religion. It was about giving back, being part of the community, and caring deeply about the state of Israel. As a young man, you had quite a career in politics, working for the Democrat Party's nominee, Walter Mondale's presidential campaign in 1983-84. That was lost to Ronald Reagan. Much later, you were earmarked to become, but missed, being White House Chief of Staff when Hillary Clinton failed to make the presidency. They must have been great disappointments. As you know, Walter, careers uh, have ups and downs, and I've been unbelievably lucky. I started my career as a young boy working uh, for Walter Mondo, as you you mentioned. (laughs) We lost 49 states. Uh, For your listeners to know, there's 50 states, so that's not a very good thing to happen. Uh, Obviously, I've worked for uh, uh, Secretary Clinton uh, when she was Secretary of State. I've had the opportunity for President Obama and President Clinton. I worked on Capitol Hill, and I've also worked in investment banking in, in, in Wall Street. So I have had a really great career, and nothing better to have a career by a capstone of being the American ambassador to Israel. And to me, no higher honor that one could be bestowed upon. We are very honored to have you as ambassador. Now we're fast approaching this year's midterm elections in your country, and opinion polls still show favorable for the Republicans, although the margins are narrowing. Does that bring back happier memories for you of the midterms in 86 in which you were involved? Walter, you're very well informed. Now that I'm the American ambassador, I don't do politics anymore, at least partisan politics. Uh, because I'm everyone's friend, both Republicans and Democrats. I look on your wall here and I see uh, my friend Lindsey Graham, who is a great friend and supporter of Israel. Certainly his politics and I may be a little bit different. I then see Joe Lieberman there, who uh, I was actually his campaign manager in 2000 when he ran as vice president, first uh, Jewish vice presidential candidate with Al Gore. I look over your wall and see my friend Steny Hoyer, who is the uh, House Majority Leader. Kevin McCarthy, who was a Republican, who I just hosted for dinner a few months ago. So in this particular job, I'm bipartisan. I only care about is making sure that I see members of Congress, members of the Senate and the House who are are interested in Israel and want to support Israel's security and its well-being. Well, you're still young. So do you have ambitions for higher office? (laughs) Now, I, I think I've reached my goals of being both Uh, behind the scenes and in front of the camera. And listen, this job of being ambassador to Israel, as you know, is not for the faint of heart, although it's an unbelievable experience for me personally. uh, It's hard, and I want to do the best job I can do at this job, uh, supporting uh, the United States in our most important ally, that of the state of Israel. As ambassador, you are representing the policies and interests of the United States. In his recent speech at the United Nations, President Biden said, and I quote, a negotiated two-state solution remains, in our view, the best way for Israel's security and prosperity for the future, and give the Palestinians the state to which they are entitled. You also subscribe to that, I know. But on what historic facts is this entitlement based? Well, let's step back for one second. As you know, President Biden was here just a month ago for what I believe was his 10th visit, an historic visit to the state of Israel. And I think 
as you recall, and I'm sure he reported on, in his first statement as he got off Air Force One and he went on to the podium standing there next to then Prime Minister Lapid uh, and alternative Prime Minister Bennett and uh, President Herga, he said the following words, you do not need to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Joe Biden is a friend of Israel. Uh, he has been at the forefront of the security of the state of Israel for the last 40 years. So you will find no better friend of the state of Israel. Joe Biden believes, as I do, that if Israel is going to maintain being a democratic Jewish state, we must not give up the vision for a two-state solution. Every day we spend time helping not only making sure the security state of Israel is not compromised, we also hope that the, for the Palestinian people, we give them hope and opportunity for the future. So my job as American ambassador is to work closely with the Israelis and the Palestinians to avoid situations that make that vision impossible to obtain. So that's what I work on. That's what Joe Biden works on. That's what we try to work on together. But you're not answering the question, Ambassador. The entitlement, where does this come from? Well, I'll be honest. My view of this is, is as the president said, that he believes in a two-stage solution based on the 67 lines with land swaps. It's something, a position, by the way, that we've supported, uh, President George Bush 43, who was a Republican, President 41, Bill Clinton. This is not an unusual position of a Democratic and Republican administrations, which is a two-state solution based on 67 lines with land swaps. I'm not a dreamer by nature. Uh, I'm a practical guy. So I wake up every day trying to figure out what I practically can do to make sure we keep that vision alive. Everyone knows that throughout history, the country has been ruled by numerous groups, including, and I quote, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Arabs, Fatimids, uh, Seljuk Turks, Crusaders, Egyptians, Mamelukes, and from about 1517 to the end of World War I, the Ottoman Empire ruled much of the region. Then the League of Nations issued a mandate that gave Britain administrative control over the region and included provisions for establishing a Jewish national homeland in what was then called Palestine. But a Palestinian nation never existed and never came into the picture until Yasser Arafat, an Egyptian, started a nationalist movement in 1964 in response to Zionism. The historic foundation for this nationalist Palestinian claim is unclear because research into the history of this land did not uncover even one Palestinian king, ruler, government, or evidence of a national Palestinian entity. Your response? Walter, again, uh, you're a historian. You're 98 years young. You have mentioned to me earlier you're going to be celebrating your 99th birthday in three months. You have lived the history of the state of Israel, the birth of this country, the birth of this nation. My job and the job of President Biden, in his view, is to continue keeping this a strong, democratic Jewish state. We believe one of the ways in which to do that is to have a two-state solution. Some people may disagree with us. Arguably, public opinion has changed both in Israel and even with the Palestinian people. We believe that the solution here to continue keeping this a strong democratic Jewish state is a two-state solution, and that's what we'll work towards. Just one last point on this subject before we move on. It's a fact that Jerusalem is mentioned 669 times in the Torah, and the alternate 
Hebrew name Zion appears countless times in the Old Testament and even 142 times, I believe, in the New Testament. But in the Quran, Jerusalem is not even mentioned once. In fact, some pious Muslims even refer to Jerusalem as Bayt al-Muqaddas, city of the Betamikdash. Does that not place doubt on the veracity of the Arab claim? Let us be clear. The capital of Israel is Jerusalem. Again, let me repeat. The capital of Israel is Jerusalem. The American ambassador, that would be me, now lives in Jerusalem. I have a home in Jerusalem. The question of the future of Jerusalem will be decided by the parties at whatever appropriate time that actually occurs. Lucky to be you and I happen to be alive when a decision of a two-state solution actually comes to fruition. And then, oh, by the way, at the end of the, those discussions, a decision about the future of Jerusalem was decided by the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. That would be up to them. We cannot impose our desires and our sanctimonious what future of Jerusalem. But the capital of Israel is Jerusalem. Let me now touch on U.S. policy on Taiwan. That's a transition, Walter. How did we go from Jerusalem to Taiwan? Well, we could go on talking about the Jerusalem question and two-state solution uh, ad infinitum, I think. <laughs> yeah, I bet we can. So, President Biden has on numerous occasions said that the U.S. will defend Taiwan militarily if attacked by China. We heard him say it again in his address at the United Nations. And each time, the White House tried to change the meaning effectively contradicting him. Who is in charge, the commander-in-chief or the unelected officials? (laughs) Walter. Joe Biden, as we know, tends to be exceptionally honest and forthright in how his views are. We will work with what we've had as our position has been the same for 40 years, which is the relationship with the U.S. and Taiwan is strong. We provide them lots of military assistance. We'll work with the Taiwanese as we see the situation on the ground evolve. Uh, But Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Make no mistake about that. Well, surely when the president repeats something four times, he means it. That is to say the least confusing and underscores the allegations from some quarters that the president may have memory problems. (laughs) What can you tell us? Well, let me tell you, I'm in the presence of someone who is 98 years old, and I told you just a few minutes ago when you were showing me some of your memorabilia that I'll sign up for you right now, okay? I'll sign up for your memory, your articulation, your focus, and your worldview. I'll say the same thing about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is younger than you are. He's your junior, obviously, only, I think, uh, 79 years old. I will sign up for Joe Biden right now. He was here. You asked the Israelis who witnessed him here for uh, almost three days. The vision of Joe Biden getting down on one knee and holding the hands of those two women who are Holocaust survivors and the tears running down his face and the women's faces, seeing what he did at not only Yad Vashem, but at the airport, seeing him with Prime Minister Lapid and Bennett, uh, seeing him with uh, President Abbas in Bethlehem. Actions speak louder than words. Joe Biden uh, is forceful, he's articulate, Uh, he knows this country, and he knows the issues in the Middle East probably than any single president, dead or alive. He is in control, and he certainly understands his position and what he should be doing.
So how do you explain my question? The, the White House apparently doesn't agree with what he says. I think, listen, the White House uh, speaks on behalf of the president. I've been involved in politics for obviously many years. Many presidents and secretaries of state, all issues that are spoken by presidents and politicians always can and will be sometimes clarified to make sure people understand it. Our positions have been quite clear, and Joe Biden speaks from his heart, and that's what's important for people to understand. And now I'd like to get your thoughts on Ukraine. The Russian unprovoked attack on Ukraine has dominated the news for the past six months. The Western powers, having realized that Putin's ambitions go beyond the Ukraine, are supplying the weapons to halt the Russian offensive. Now Putin is conscripting 300,000 men for the Russian armed forces, has annexed more than 15% of Ukraine into his federation, and threatens to use all means within his power and I'm not bluffing, he said, probably meaning to defend his parts of Ukraine if it is attacked. So now the war may enter a different dimension. Do you think Putin would use WMDs and would that bring NATO into the war? Let's step back for a minute. Putin is a madman. Putin has done the atrocities that will forever be in the history of mankind. He'll be judged not for what he's done for the Russian people, but what he's done to the Russian people and what he's done to the Ukrainian people. My heart breaks for the innocent men and women and children who have had to flee and have been killed by this crazy ambition of Putin. Ultimately, the one thing I will say that no one would have predicted six months ago that Europe and the United States and NATO would be so collectively engaged in trying to stop this. The level of cooperation we have never seen, probably not since World War II, have you seen countries come together to try to stop someone as, in my view, ill-advised and irrational behavior as Putin is showing today. I don't know what the outcome is. I think it's been very clear, a message has been sent by NATO and by President Biden that using uh, weapons of mass destruction will have an enormous price that he'll have to pay and we'll pay personally and we'll pay to the Russian people. So again, I'm hoping that this can come to a conclusion at somewhat soon. Fewer and fewer people will end up dying, but this is sad and he needs to be stopped. You mentioned a price. Since January 2021, the United States has committed more than 13.5 billion, and I think it's more even today, in security assistance to the Ukraine. How long will the U.S. and NATO powers be able to support Ukraine to the tune of millions of dollars every day? Uh, Walt, it's a great question. Um, President Biden has made it very clear that we're in this for the long haul, for as long as it takes. Obviously, Europe also is facing an enormous cost, not only financial costs, energy, we're going into a long winter. But the our, we have been surprised and heartened by the commitment of the European leadership to pay that price. And it's hard. It's hard. People are will be suffering in Europe, not as much as the Ukrainian people are suffering, by the way. So we'll work with our allies to strengthen their hand. I'm confident that President Biden, in a bipartisan way, uh, Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate Minority Leader, has said over and over again his strong support for the Ukrainian people. I feel basically the Congress has been 
fully on board with what's going on in Ukraine, and I assume that that will continue regardless of what happens in the outcome of the uh, midterm elections. Now let me change tack. We are coming to Kristallnacht on November the 9th, and having experienced that horror in 1938, and observing today's rising anti-Semitism also in the U.S., what are your feelings about that? It breaks my heart. You look around and you see hate everywhere, not just in Europe with the rise of anti-Semitism and right-wing governments. You see the hate in the United States, fractions of our country being pulled apart. Here in Israel, you know, with people whose views are uh, not what I believe is a democratic Jewish state should hold. So I think we've got to keep our eyes wide open. You know, you of a person who is a survivor of World War II, you of all people know, you can never forget. And that's true in the United States as it is in Europe, as it is in Israel. We have to fight the bigots. We got to fight the anti-Semites. We got to fight the people who just want to hate and we have to do it every day, and we can't sleep until it's resolved. Finally, I have many friends and acquaintances who have family in the United States, in the southern parts of the United States, and who follow the news about the current wave of crime and fentanyl. They're concerned about their children. Are the borders secure? There's a lot more to the drug epidemic in the United States than just the borders of immigration or drugs coming over the borders. It's certainly a contributor factor. There's a lot of things, uh, economic inequality, education, health care, unevenness of people's ability to touch into treatment programs. Listen, immigration is always an issue that administrations face. I mean, George Bush 41 and 43, Donald Trump. But this is not a question necessarily about what comes over the border, although serious as it may be. It's a broader question that we need to do because it's a it savages families, not just in the South, by the way, all over. I, I come from Minnesota. Minnesota has a huge epidemic problem on drugs. I live in Washington. It used to uh, live but, in Washington. But they come in through the southern border. Well, again, drugs, drug, I'm not an expert on uh, uh, imports of drugs over the borders. Well, I will tell you, it is it is an epidemic problem, not only in southern states and the in areas of Texas and Arizona, but it's all over uh, the states. And obviously, we need everything we can to stop it. But is the border secure? Because the vice president, Kamala Harris, who is supposedly in charge of the border, seems to avoid commenting on it. Again, I'm, I'm the ambassador to Israel. Uh, I spend my time focused on Middle East issues. I think the vice president's done a very good job of articulating the concerns we have on the border. These border issues are not simple, Walter. I wish I could say to you, you know what? You can just lock them down and everything will be fine. It doesn't work that way, as you know. It's it's impossible to keep our, our borders completely safe. We, I think we're doing a pretty good job of managing a very complicated issue. But I'd be lying to people to say that this is a problem you could wave a magic wand. Again, you know, the former President Trump had a difficult time. The Republicans and Democrats have difficult times. Uh, we have to work together on problems that are attributed to immigration and borders, but we have to focus on also the things that help these programs, including education, health care, and equality for both Americans and the same problems we have in places around the world. I have many more questions and concerns, for instance, about religious pluralism and the maritime boundary deal on which you have commented. But that's where we have to leave it for today. And I hope that we can talk about some other subjects another time. Ambassador Knight, thank you very much for your time. 
And I wish you and you. May you, you also have a wonderful, wonderful year. I know that among my listeners are those who will criticize the questions as being too soft and not aggressive enough. To you, I say that the purpose was not to argue, but to have a clear explanation of the policy of the Biden administration, which the ambassador represents. If you have any comments about the interview, please write to Walter at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You will always get my personal reply, or place your comment in the appropriate section of the Walter Bingham file page on our website. And so I end for today. Thank you for listening, and until next time, once again, Chag Sameach. But I cannot end without my usual reminder that particularly on Jewish holidays, the elderly may be very lonely. So please do your duty and visit your elderly neighbor. Goodbye. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page, and don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.